Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's get get our fix. Hey, addicts. Welcome back to part two of Michael Edwin Brown. So we are just sipping on your basic mocha, but it's so good. And always over ice. (laughs) Over ice, of course. (laughs) But you know what? Sometimes like, sometimes like the basics are just exactly what you need. Absolutely. (laughs) So um, really quickly, let's shout out Goose Gang underscore Q. Anthony RSB and Brie Jock. They've liked, commented, rated, reviewed, or shared our content across all social media outlets. So thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving to us through our podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. On our website, you'll find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a pretty amazing donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, you can click on our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. As a recap of part one, on August 15th, 1997, Ronald Davis and Greg Black were murdered in cold blood in their Salt Rock, West Virginia home. Their bodies were discovered two days later on August 17th, 1997. Mr. Davis had been shot in the head and was lying on the doorway to the house. Mr. Black was lying beside his bed and had been shot seven times and died of wounds to his chest and back. In March of 1999, Michael Edwin Brown was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder by a jury verdict. In 2001, 2002, 2005, and 2009, Mr. Brown filed appeals with the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. To hear the result of those appeals and all details surrounding those appeals, jump back to episode 12 to listen to part one. Now we're going to continue on into part two of the case around Michael Edwin Brown. Following his 2009 appeal in 2011, there was another. So on January 7, 2011, an order of the Circuit Court of Cabell County granting habeas corpus relief was filed. On February 11, 2011, an order denying the petitioner's motion for reconsideration was filed. This was followed by a petition for appeal being filed by Mr. Brown and the defense team through the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. On June 13, 2011, a brief of the petitioner was filed by the warden of the Mount Olive Correctional Center, where he was incarcerated at the time, who was represented by the Attorney General. The petition for appeal included the following. One, the assistant prosecuting attorney, Joe Martarella, who was the prosecutor in the case involving a juror's son, was also a prosecutor in Mr. Brown's case that the juror at issue was 
quite likely to have been struck for cause at trial. Had she made certain disclosures and that during the juror selection process, members of the jury pool approached the preceding judge in a sidebar. Two, the lower court erred in concluding a finding of juror bias in Mr. Brown's case. Three, the low court erred in concluding that Mr. Brown was prejudiced by the juror's participation. And four, an error with respect to seating the juror at issue was harmless. The Attorney General's office response was a part of a 30 plus page appeal. So we are going to summarize it for you. They argue that first, the prosecutor in the juror's son's case was not a prosecutor in Mr. Brown's case. The record clearly and completely refutes this. Second, the court's finding that the trial judge would quite likely have stricken the jurors for cause. Had the juror made certain disclosures is wholly refuted by the trial judge himself, who stated that he would simply have asked follow-up questions of the juror and that no evidence existed to question her impartiality. Third, there were no juror sidebars during the trial giving credence to the juror's claim that one reason she failed to make disclosures was her concern about the embarrassment of making them in open court. The case of State v. Dellinger was not, quote, new law mandating a new result in Mr. Brown's case. Rather, it was a unanimous opinion that applied established law to a set of facts easily distinguishable from the facts at bar. In Dellinger, a juror deliberately failed to disclose the existence of substantial personal connections with the defendant and two witnesses, apparently for the purpose of remaining on his jury. Here, in contrast, the juror's non-disclosure did not rise to constitutional level, and her reasons for failing to disclose do not suggest any improper motive on her part. The jury's non-disclosures during jury selection do not demonstrate bias or prejudice on her part. The defense failed to establish, either directly or circumstantially, that Mr. Brown was prejudiced by the presence of juror Wickline on his jury. Even if it was a constitutional error, the state's case against Mr. Brown was too strong with direct testimony from, from accomplice witnesses corroborating forensic evidence and evidence of Mr. Brown's after-the-fact admission that he had killed the victims. A review of the record leading to that conclusion that, if anything, Mr. Brown caught a break. The jury granted mercy in a case involving two execution-style murders. So in conclusion, they basically concluded that by stating that the decision of the Circuit Court of Cabell County, West Virginia, should be reversed and that this case should be remanded to the habeas court to hear and decide the defense's remaining issues and claims, which have not been addressed by the court. I am going to read you an article that came out after that hearing on the appeal that Tay just read. So this article is written by Curtis Johnson of the Herald Dispatch. It's titled, Judge Overturns 99 Murder Conviction, and it is dated February 12, 2011. One juror's silence from 12 years ago could mean a new trial for a Milton man convicted of killing two others along McComas Road on eastern Cabell County. Senior status judge John Cummings entered the ruling Friday. It sets aside a guilty verdict and two life prison sentences for 34-year-old Michael E. Brown, 
while opening the door to a state Supreme Court challenge that will question how courts judge the honesty of potential jurors. Cummings' decision focused on the silence of Brenda Wickline, a juror then known as Brenda Foster. He faults her for keeping quiet about sexual assault and kidnapping charges that were facing her son at the time of Brown's trial. Brown's attorney, James Cagle, argues her silence amounts to dishonesty because presiding judge Dan O'Hanlon had asked Wickline and other potential jurors if they or any member of their family had been a defendant in a criminal case. Cagle further argued that her silence prevented either side from asking potential follow-up questions, any of which, he said, could have disqualified her from the case. Cummings agreed. Quote, without the truthfulness from the jurors, the system collapses in on itself, he said. The incident occurred during jury selection in February of 1999. The trial concerned the August 17, 1997 deaths of Ronald Davis and Greg Black. The prosecution had argued Brown and another man killed both victims after the victims accused Brown of shorting them on a marijuana transaction. Davis and Black were found dead in the McComas Road residence. Brown's parents attended Friday's hearing while their son stayed behind bars at the state's Mount Olive Correctional Center in Fayette County. They expressed satisfaction with Cummings' decision. The judge set a March 15, 2011 arraignment for Brown's new trial. That amounts to a one-month delay, thus giving Cabell County Prosecutor Chris Childs time to appeal the decision. The prosecutor vowed to do just that at the close of Friday's hearing. He argues Wickline's sentence did not affect her ability to render a fair and impartial verdict. He said the juror was confused about verb tense, believing the judge's question did not apply to her son as his case was still pending and he was innocent until proven guilty. Wickline also had signed an affidavit that explained she, quote, felt afraid to respond to the question because her son was in front of the same judge, end quote. Quote, those of us that are lawyers understand clearly, Childs argued, but as a lay person, it is understandable why she did not answer, end quote. Childs argued that case does not apply to the fact and circumstances of Wickline's mistake. He said the Dellinger case involved a juror who knew the particular defendant and witnesses and justices found the juror answered questions in a manner as to increase the chance of serving on that particular jury. Quote, none of that is present in the case of Mrs. Wickline, he said. Childs also argued the Dellinger case was in no way a landmark decision and said no precedent, meaning the justices based that decision upon the same case law O'Hanlon used to dismiss an earlier attempt from Brown's attorneys. Cummings disagreed, saying he believes the Dellinger case broadened and expanded the jury questioning process to get truth from potential jurors. Quote, the decision of a juror as to whether or not they are fair and impartial is based upon their answers or, in this case, their non-answers, he said. A non-answer is, in this case, the same as a fabrication. Friday's ruling amounts to Mr. Brown's third try at winning a new trial. The state Supreme Court rejected multiple defense arguments in upholding the guilty verdict in a 2001 decision. O'Hanlon upheld the verdict for a second time last year in face of arguments concerning Wickline's sentence. Cummings then took up the matter on reconsideration based upon Dellinger's decision, which the court filed in June of 2010. 
Friday's decision reaffirms a January 7, 2011, order by Cummings demanded a fair trial. The hearing was commenced based upon the prosecution's motion for reconsideration. Denying that request was Cummings' last act in his most recent senior status assignment. The Supreme Court had appointed him to preside over the court's docket following last year's retirement of O'Hanlon. A new judge, Paul T. Farrell, is scheduled to take over the docket on Monday. He is the permanent replacement appointed last month by Governor Earl Ray Tomlin. So after that article and later that year, on December 30th, 2011, the deposition of a confidential witness was taken. The witness testified that on multiple occasions, Mr. Fortner acknowledged shooting the victims. The witness also testified that Mr. Fortner went to the victim's home where the shooting took place to kill the victims because the victims owed Mr. Fortner money. The witnesses further testified that Mr. Fortner was angry at Mr. Brown for talking about what happened. Mr. Fortner believed he was not in prison for killing two people, but because Mr. Brown talked. On September 24th of 2012, so a little less than a year, Mr. Brown filed a motion for a new trial because upon newly discovered evidence, he contends undermines the trial evidence against him. On May 2nd, 2013, the parties argued that the motion for a new trial with both sides agreeing. The circuit court found that this newly discovered evidence would not have produced a not guilty verdict in a new trial and that the sole purpose of the evidence was to impeach Mr. Fortner. In its October 23rd, 2013, quote, order denying motion for new trial, end quote, the circuit court found that Mr. Brown failed to meet his burden of proof and denied his motion. Thereafter, the circuit court entered its January 9, 2014, order-denying amended petition for post-conviction habeas corpus ad subjacendium on two remaining issues. Quote, in that order, the circuit court found that evidence regarding Mr. Fortner's mental health condition and treatment was not exculpatory or impeachment evidence that could have been introduced at Mr. Brown's trial. It also found that the state did not fail to disclose Mr. Fortner's mental health records because at the time of the trial, the state did not have knowledge of the same. The circuit court continued by stating that even assuming Mr. Fortner's mental health condition and treatment were exculpatory or impeachment evidence and the state did suppress the introduction of the same. The introduction of the evidence would have gone to the witness's credibility and would have been something that the jury considered as part of the determination of Mr. Fortner's credibility. The circuit court would have permitted Mr. Fortner to testify and the jury as the fact finders could consider whether his mental health had an impact on his reaction and memory of the events on the night in question. The court, therefore, denied Mr. Brown's petition for habeas corpus on that ground. In its order, the circuit court also addressed the second unresolved habeas issue, whether the circuit court should have disqualified one of the jurors or whether that failure prevented Mr. Brown from having a fair trial. The circuit court found that juror Wickline was not under indictment at the time of petitioner's trial, though her adult son had been indicted. If found that pursuant to West Virginia Code Subsection 56-6-14, juror Wickline did not have a matter to be tried during the term of court, wherein she was a juror in Mr. Brown's trial. 
so she should not have been disqualified. Thus, the circuit court denied Mr. Brown's habeas petition on these two remaining issues. Mr. Brown filed appeals from both the October 23, 2013 order and the January 9, 2014 order. So I am again going to read you another article that was released right after that appeal hearing was held. Um, this one is written by Zach Taylor of the Charleston Gazette Mail. It's titled Supreme Court Denies New Trial for Double Murder and is dated June 1st of 2012. The West Virginia Supreme Court has overturned a circuit judge's decision and denied a new trial for a Milton man who appealed his 1999 double murder conviction after a juror revealed that she was indirectly connected to the case. In a 3-2 decision released Friday afternoon, the court ruled that Michael E. Brown had a fair trial even though the juror failed to, among other things, disclose that her son was set to appear before Cabell Circuit Judge Dan O'Hanlon on criminal charges in another case. In 1997, prosecutors said Brown walked into a home in Salt Rock and shot two people dead in order to steal drugs. During jury selection in Brown's trial, juror Brenda Wickline did not tell lawyers that her son had been indicted on criminal charges and was scheduled to stand trial in front of the same judge according to the Supreme Court opinion. Wickline also did not disclose that she had heard of Cabell County Assistant Prosecutor Joseph Martarella, who was the prosecutor in her son's case and whom the state listed during jury selection as having an affiliation with the Brown case. Finally, Wickline did not speak up when she realized that her son's attorney represented one of the witnesses in Brown's case. During a post-trial deposition, Wickline explained that she withheld the information partially because the trial process intimidated her and because she was ashamed that her son was in criminal trouble, according to the opinion. She maintained, however, that she was impartial during the trial and deliberated her verdict without bias, the opinion states. She also pointed out that if she were biased... Quote, she would have been more likely to have been sympathetic to Brown due to the fact that her son had also been arrested and charged with a crime, the opinion states. Because of Wickline's admissions, Cabell County Court John Cummings had overturned Brown's convictions and ordered a new trial. In their decision, Justices Robin Davis, Brent Benjamin, and Margaret Workman overturned Cummings' decision and reinstated Brown's convictions. Chief Justice Menace Ketchum and Justice Thomas McHugh dissented from the decision. Ketchum and Brown's original appeal claimed that prosecutors did not have any evidence that linked him to the murders, just testimony of a, quote, self-serving criminal witness, according to Ketchum's dissenting opinion. Matthew Fortner and Joe France allegedly were with Brown when he shot the two men in the house. Ketchum pointed out that Fortner and France were later arrested in Florida for an armed robbery and were found to be in possession of the gun Brown reportedly used in the double murder. Quote, those circumstances, coupled with a problematic jury, concerning which is now added the material non-disclosures of juror Wickline, suggest a result at a trial which is forever tainted, Ketchum said. In his last appeal on November 21st, 2014, in the State of West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, number 14-0134, Petitioner Michael E. Brown, by Counsel James M. Cagle, appeals both of the denials of his motion for new trial and the dismissal of his petition for writ of habeas corpus. Respondent Michael V. Coleman 
acting warden by counsel Christopher S. Dodrow, filed his response to which Mr. Brown submitted a reply. On appeal, Mr. Brown set forth three assignments of error. The first, he contends that the circuit court erred in denying his motion for a new trial, arguing that the motion was supported by sworn deposition testimony of a person who informed the state that Mr. Fortner had stated on multiple occasions that he fired the shots that killed the victims. The defense claims that the deposition testimony wherein Mr. Fortner admitted killing the victims constitutes new evidence which entitled Mr. Brown to a new trial and that this new evidence would produce a different result at trial. The defense was critical of the circuit court's findings that this new evidence was merely for impeachment, as he claims it is substantiative evidence. The circuit court found that Mr. Brown did not satisfy the requirements of awarding a new trial for newly discovered evidence. During the deposition, the confidential witness testified that the witness was unable to determine whether Mr. Fortner was telling the truth when he claimed he shot the victims. In addition, the witness testified that Mr. Fortner acknowledged Mr. Brown's participation in the robbery, including the witness stating that Mr. Fortner said that Mr. Brown had a gun at the time of the robbery. During the trial, witness Mr. Mount testified that petitioner told him that Mr. Fortner fired the shots so that information was before the jury in the trial. Thus, the circuit court did not err on concluding that the deposition testimony by the witness did not satisfy the requirements of awarding a new trial for newly discovered evidence. In point number two of the appeal, Mr. Brown argued that the circuit court erred when it concluded that Mr. Fortner's extensive mental health records do not constitute exculpatory or impeachment evidence, which the state investigate and provide notice of the same to the defense counsel. Mr. Brown contends that Mr. Fortner had an extensive history of mental health problems, but that the circuit court concluded, as a matter of law, that the evidence was neither exculpatory nor impeachment evidence. The defense was also critical of the circuit court's findings that such evidence would not have been admissible at trial. In support of the argument, the defense points to Mr. Fortner's testimony at his own habeas proceedings wherein he admitted that he had been using drugs since the age of 12, had been abused by a relative, had participated in bestiality, and had been hospitalized in a psychiatric unit more than a year prior to the murders. On November 9, 2007, the defense asked the circuit court to examine Mr. Fortner's mental health records, but the request was denied. The defense contends that the records contain information sufficient to call Mr. Fortner's trial testimony into question. In response to this point, Dodrell said that in addition to Mr. Fortner's testimony about his criminal past, he testified that he had been off drugs for some time prior to Mr. Brown's trial, so the record is devoid of evidence that Mr. Fortner was under the influence of drugs at the time he testified at trial. The defense fails to show that Mr. Fortner's mental health records might tend to establish Mr. Brown's innocence. Therefore, the West Virginia Supreme Court found no error in the circuit court's ruling and the evidence does not constitute exculpatory evidence. Further, the West Virginia Supreme Court found that the defense did not show that the mental health records were suppressed by the state or that the evidence was material, particularly in light of the fact that the defense had the opportunity to examine Mr. Fortner regarding his criminal and mental health history to the extent that the trial court may have permitted such testimony. Therefore, the West Virginia Supreme Court found that the circuit court did not err in denying Mr. Brown's petition for habeas relief on this ground. 
The third and last point of the appeal was that the defense that the circuit court erred by concluding that a juror who was the mother of a person scheduled for trial in the same term of court as Mr. Brown and was liable for her son's bond if he failed to appear is not a disqualified juror under West Virginia Code, subsection 56-6-14. Juror Wickline's son was scheduled for a trial in the same court before the same judge the week after Mr. Brown's trial. The juror Wickline was the surety on her son's bond. West Virginia Code Subcircuit 56-6-14 states that no person shall serve as a juror at any term of a court during which he has any matter of fact to be tried by a jury, which shall have been, or is expected to be, tried during the same term. The defense argues that the statute is not clear about who is a person within the statute and that the person should include those involved in litigation or who have particular interest in a case. He therefore asserts that juror Wickline should have been disqualified. While the defense tries to make this constitutional issue, the categorization is incorrect. A habeas proceeding is not the proper avenue for review of ordinary trial error. For this reason, the West Virginia Supreme Court declined to address Mr. Brown's assignment of error. So in conclusion, upon consideration of the standard of review, the briefs and the record presented, the court found no substantial question of law and no prejudicial error. They also found no hearing needed to take place as a memorandum on the decision was issued. The court found that the circuit court did not err in denying habeas corpus relief to petitioner or in denying his motion for a new trial based upon newly discovered evidence. Okay, so in researching the case this week, we have read lots and lots and lots of court transcripts and documents and information and articles to try to get a vibe of what was going on over the years. Mm -hmm. And we have, I know, thrown a lot of information at you and some of it sounds repetitive, but that's what each of those appeals concluded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously when you're appealing a decision that was previously made, it, it may be a duplicate of what yeah. one you've already appealed, like you're still appealing it. So um, hang with us, because this is where it gets to the juice. So <laughs> we've summarized like literally thousands of pages of court documents for you in this small time. But I want to get into where we're at currently because that was the last appeal in 2014. That was the last appeal that he had mm -hmm. and he's out of appeals now. Mm -hmm. So where are we at today as we sit and record this podcast? What's going on? Michael Edwin Brown, who is inmate number 3571791, is serving his time at the Northern Correctional Facility in West Virginia. He is described as a 45-year-old white male standing 6 feet 3 inches tall and weighing 165 pounds. His next parole hearing date is June 3rd of 2028 after being incarcerated since he was sentenced on May 21st of 1999. If he does not make parole at that parole hearing in 2028, I mean, he may come up eligible again and again and again, but mm. if he never made parole ever, he would serve the rest of his life in prison for two counts of first-degree murder with no more appeals. In getting to his co-defendants, Joe Thomas France, inmate number 3559204, is currently incarcerated at the Huttonsville Correctional Center in West Virginia. I know that might shock you because he 
was able to escape these charges. Mm -hmm. However, he has been incarcerated since August 4th of 2021 on the charges of driving while license suspended or revoked, driving while license revoked for driving under the influence of alcohol, and an attempt to commit a felony punishable with term less than life on two different cases out of Putnam and Cabell counties. So I just want to take a minute to say that that is the most vague charge that they could possibly come up with. What is West Virginia doing? Yeah. Like, what was it? Attempt to commit a felony punishable with term less than life. So attempt what, to commit a felony what charge qualifies. Yeah. Like that could literally be anything. <laughs> right. That's crazy. So I don't know exactly what that charge is, but his next parole hearing date is scheduled for January 11th, 2023. If he doesn't make parole, his projected release date is February 9th of 2024. He's described as a 43-year-old white male standing 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighing 175 pounds. The second co-defendant, Matthew Fortner, is currently residing in Huttonsville, West Virginia, and is a free man. In addition to all the research that we have done, we have also spoken to someone who knew and grew up with Mr. Brown. His name is Vince, and he was Mr. Brown's classmate, acquaintance, teammate, and friend. Mr. Brown's father was even their little league basketball coach for a season or two. This was one of those towns that were so small that everyone just kind of knew everyone. They went to Milton High School in Milton, West Virginia together, which actually doesn't exist anymore because they consolidated because the town was so small. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Mr. Brown graduated with the class of 1994, which was one year behind Vince. Vince said that he'd never heard of Mr. Brown being involved in the drug scene and certainly was not known for that to his knowledge. Vince said, quote, My knowledge has always been from reading the stories in the paper and following it over the years. It just never seemed to make any sense to me and had the feel of a small town wanting to close a case without really doing all the legwork, end quote. He knew that Mr. Brown was offered a deal for much less prison time if he were to admit guilt, but that he denied the offer and refused to admit guilt. Quote, with all the true crime interest these days, I always wondered if someone would stumble across his case and look into it. It bothered me enough that back in 2018, I emailed the West Virginia Innocence Project about him, but they said he would have to reach out to them to look into it. They didn't take third-party referrals. End quote. We just want to say a big thank you to Vince for providing us some insight for Mr. Brown's life prior to this unfortunate situation he found himself in. Um, We really appreciate all of his willingness to help and communicate with us. He was able to paint like a really good picture and kind of provide us some details and get us on our way to researching for this case. So thank you, Vince. Additionally, we should also mention that we obtained some more insight from Mr. Brown's sister, Susan Brown Long because she wrote an article in Justice Denied, the magazine for the wrongly convicted. She stands by that her brother is innocent and has vowed to prove his innocence. She provides a really good overview of the circumstances we have listed today, but without all the legal jargon and basically it was kind of in summary along with her opinions on what actually happened. So in Susan's opinion, Mr. Fortner told the police exactly what happened, only he placed Mr. Brown in his own shoes. She claims Mr. Brown was never asked to give a statement upon being arrested. Fortner's own statements, when compared to the crime scene evidence and actually placed him in the footsteps of the shooter himself. The first victim was shot in the face as he answered the door. 
The prosecution and police referred to this as a military-style killing. Fortner was in the military, and he was well-trained with weapons. According to Fortner's testimony, the entry of the bullet in the first victim and the location of the spent 9mm cartridges put Fortner standing right where the killer had to have been standing. The second victim had been shot in his bedroom while lying on the bed. Fortner said Brown walked to the bedroom door and began firing from the doorway. Fortner also said that while looking over Brown's shoulder, he saw the victim's body, quote, jump. However, according to where the spent shell casings were found, the evidence proves that the gunman went into the bedroom and while moving about the room, shot the victim. The Glock 9mm does not kick spent shell casings very far. Spent casings typically drop only a few inches from where the gun is fired. This alone proves that the shooter had been moving around the room. Brown is six foot three inches tall. Fortner is approximately five foot seven. There is no way Fortner could have looked over Brown's shoulder to see anything. Further information reported by Susan that has been unconfirmed for the purpose of this podcast. One, Mr. Mount relocated to Charleston, South Carolina and attended the culinary arts school Mr. Brown was attending before he was arrested. Two, the state police are supposed to be unbiased and present only the facts in a case. Conveniently, the assistant prosecutor had her husband, a state trooper, giving her the facts. She withheld some of those facts from the defense. For example, Trooper DeVita testified that there was a third person, Doss Adkins, living in the Black and Davis house two weeks before the murders. The trooper said, that he had interviewed this man, but said he had nothing relevant to say about the case. However, the trooper did not tell the defense about this witness. The defense team was never afforded the opportunity to question Atkins to see if he had any information that would have been relevant to Brown's defense. Doss Atkins could not be located. I wonder if he had information to provide. Like that's That could be a big deal. Yeah. I mean, he lived in the home. He lived in the home. And, and he may to have say known that he wasn't there at the time. And he may he could have ran away. And he may have had knowledge of those keys or could have mm-hmm. said, you know, I was there and that was never even mentioned. I mean, yeah. he could have. I mean, the keys were found. Anything. Maybe he was the one who turned them in. Right. I mean, yeah, he, he could play a huge part or no part at all. But mm-hmm. that's crazy that they could never locate him. Not to mention, well, they tried to locate him, couldn't find him. But mm-hmm. at the time of the trial, they didn't even know that that happened. Yeah. I wonder, crazy. I wish we could like fact check this somehow right okay so the third one was mr brown has had a lot of support from his family friends and the community on april 23rd of 1999 a petition was presented to judge o'hanlon consisting of 648 signatures that had been collected over a two-week period that's a lot for a small community yeah dude especially just in two weeks Mm mm-hmm so the petition asked the judge to overturn brown's conviction or grant him a new trial All those who thought Mr. Brown was innocent signed the petition. Judge O'Hanlon said the petition was a waste of his time and sent a message to the Brown family telling them to quit having people write him letters about Mr. Brown being innocent. He said he did not have the time for such foolishness. The Brown family asked no one to write the letters to the judge. The people of the community took it upon themselves to, to contact him and express their opinion about Mr. Brown's innocence. I am Mike Brown's sister. Susan Brown Long, and if it takes me the rest of my life, I will seek justice for my brother. 
He is an innocent young man who was unjustly convicted by a very corrupt system, end quote. It's crazy to think that if this case happened today, like, mm-hmm. you know, right now or even in the last like decade, that all of this information 100% would have been uploaded to like social media and to a website like you know if they did receive a letter that Mm -hmm. 100% would have been shared to the community you know and it's it's hard to find these records now because like she just said that was written in 1999 like obviously that was in the stone ages in comparison to (laughs) right to electronics but uh it's interesting because not able to confirm that you know those petitions were sent or that that letter was received from the judge or whatever is so interesting because had this case happened a decade later Mm -hmm. you know this would have been a completely different outcome or potentially a different outcome not to mention can we talk about how this all started right over marijuana right i mean that's like it's easy to get your hands on now yeah Yeah. like that situation i could i could assume for like cocaine heroin Mm -hmm. like hardcore drugs Mm -hmm. but the fact that this was over marijuana it's like Mm -hmm. Okay, makes sense. We're in the 90s right now. Right. And then they also <laughs> were saying like, oh, they, so it started because he was allegedly selling them weed, whether he was, you know, a longtime drug dealer or not, we don't know. Mm-hmm. To the, according to the family, no. According to his co-defendants, yes. We don't, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. But he sold them weed. He shorted it to them. They confronted him about it. He went over there and they had a discussion that came to somehow a resolution that everybody agreed upon, Mm -hmm. whatever that was. We don't Mm -hmm. even know what that was. So they came to a conclusion. Then he leaves and determines he jumped to the conclusion immediately that when he couldn't find his keys, that they stole them. So he decides to murder them. That's essentially what the what the argument is. Right. So two points to that. One is. I don't think that either of those things, whether shorting somebody on weed or having keys stolen, because they don't have the vehicle. Yeah. So stealing the keys to the car that nobody can decide which one it is, by the way, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, neither of those escalate to murder, in my opinion. And number two, if he went to their home and left, how did he leave if they didn't have the keys? keys? Hmm. Like, where the fuck are those keys? True that. What? I feel like that's like... We didn't have no push to start stuff back in the 90s. So right. it's definitely not that situation. And even then... Push to start. <laughs> yes. I didn't even think about that. But you're right. They didn't have that option. It's... it's Yeah, it's very... Um, so he drove um, there to resolve a, a supposed problem. Resolved it. Which to me is a bigger issue than him losing his keys. Because he jumped to the conclusion that they stole them. Mm-hmm. Even... Let's say that... We were, let's say you and I are completely misunderstanding and he rode with somebody else and he, you know, he didn't have his car or whatever. Mm -hmm. Still, if you couldn't find your keys, why would you jump to the assumption that somebody stole them before, I don't know, looking Looking, anywhere? And and like, why would you immediately start planning a murder? Like, that's just a huge jump to me. And I don't think that's a, like, that's not a sufficient argument in my opinion. Like, hmm. even if they're saying that that's what happened prior to, to me, that doesn't result in murder. And even if he was, we're saying a drug addict or using mm-hmm. drugs, we have to remember, like you said, it's marijuana. Mm-hmm. So in comparison, it's not like, you know, he's tripping off acid and doesn't know yeah. what the fuck is going on. Right, right. So. Okay, so, but, but 
what if this just popped into my head okay not saying that like this is a gang or anything like that but this is like a new clique that he's hanging around with what if this was like some type of initiation so it wasn't technically that he was upset it was more so of he's hanging around with these guys because we're talking about like him basically knowing what he wants in his life and per his family's account doesn't do drugs you Mm -hmm. know he was going to culinary school Mm -hmm. he had his life set out for him his path Mm -hmm. set Mm -hmm. goals ambitions what if so so then it's like why is he hanging around with these people right who have like history of drugs history of mental illness like why so so then what if for whatever reason he starts hanging around with these guys and they're like hey you want to hang you got to show us that we can trust you. Right. I so think, not to the not to the point where they didn't like it wasn't because of the keys. That was the excuse that was made mm-hmm. for the story mm-hmm. that was going to be presented in front of the police. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it was like an initiation mm-hmm. where it was like, we're going to make you do this just because mm-hmm. we want to mess with you. So you my, know what I mean? Like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but my in response to that, like I had never even thought of that. But now as you're talking about it, the only reason that I think that that it probably isn't that, in my opinion, and, like, the picture that I have painted in my head of what happened, like, mm-hmm. however many years ago, <laughs> is that that, like, supposed gang never continued. And they mm-hmm. were able to immediately turn on each other, point fingers, mm-hmm. which, you know, isn't that a whole, like, snitching thing? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so not only did this never continue, uh, like, the gang or whatever, yeah. but I think, like, so I'm actually from a small town, and I think it's hard when you're in a town, like, you grew up with these people your whole life going to school, and it just because they grew up and made poor decisions doesn't mean you have to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So he could have been the only one in the group that had goals and a career path, and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously he already had his life set considering this happened. Two days later, the bodies were found, and three days later, he was in a completely different state living in his own apartment he has a job he is going Mm -hmm. to school i mean he's literally doing what he's supposed to be doing as an adult and these two fuckers another crime are down in another state Mm -hmm. robbing more people Mm -hmm. and so i think in my opinion i don't necessarily think it was a gang thing i think it's one of those like going away right like i'm leaving big shebang let's you know, if they want to smoke or do whatever they're going to do, hang out for the weekend because he's about to leave. Mm. And you're making maybe decisions that are potentially not what your normal decisions would be because your family is saying like, Mm -hmm. no, he did not do this. You know, it could have just been like, oh, our big last hurrah and then I'm out, you know, kind of a Mm -hmm. thing. But to me, I didn't get the gang vibe. Uh, But not so much gang vibe, but I'm almost thinking like mean girl status. Right. You know, it's like like they bullied him into like a click. And then he was hanging around. Like, I get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean gang, like gang. Mm-hmm. I meant more like initiation within the gang, meaning like to, you know, like we all grew up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I mean, I wasn't like small town like your small town, but it was mm-hmm. still kind of small compared mm-hmm. to like where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. And I felt that mm-hmm. like it was pressure. like, like peer stat. pressure, P- peer pressure, mm-hmm. like just like the you have like two clicks or two people within a click. And if anyone else was to come into it, it's just like straight up sabotage, like right. just flip on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we don't, we'll never know. We could sit here and speculate all day mm-hmm. long. 
all we know is what has been reported and what he's been convicted of. And obviously, both sides of this trial had completely different pictures to paint of who Mm -hmm. Michael Brown was and what was going on in his life at that time and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing that everybody seems to agree on, except for Mr. Brown, is that he was somehow involved. I mean, his story Mm -hmm. is that he was never even there. Mm -hmm. And then when they start running the test results and everything like that of the gunshot residue, the palm prints, there's no evidence that he was he even present even there. Yeah. And they, he did so turn the, over his clothes mm-hmm. and they did not find any evidence of mm-hmm. blood or anything like they that. They checked his car. No gunshot residue. But Mr. Fortner didn't. And so I think it's an interesting point of view to say like that his sister has, that Susan has of Mr. Fortner is telling the truth, but saying that it's Mr. Brown yeah. that conducted all of that. Yeah. And the reason is, is because he's saying, oh, he took it out back in the woods behind the yeah. house. He didn't even have what's behind, didn't have his woods behind his house. But Mr. Yeah. Fortner did. Right. So it's interesting to me, like little things like that kind of cue me into thinking that, you know, he's saying that essentially I'm telling the truth because this is what happened. But he's just putting somebody else's he's name in replace bigger. of his own. Yep. Yeah. And, and another thing that's why kind not, of... Why not do it to the kind of the more successful of the crew from the small town. Right. Right. From your small town. You're getting you know? out. We're not. Mm-hmm. What we got to do, what we got to do to keep you here yeah. or bring you down or mm-hmm. we're jealous of you, envious of you. Definitely. I see it. Um, another thing that's always kind of bothered me about this too, since we're like going on this rampage of like all these <laughs> things that drive me crazy about this case um, is that they ha- kind of like always referred to it as a robbery, but there was never any evidence that anything was stolen. It was, there was no evidence that it was a robbery. And the motive, like according to the state, was that he was going to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, two people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what they stood by. So when they refer to it as the robbery or, you know, like Mr. Franz drove them to the robbery or something like that, it's always to me like there was never any proof that a robbery even took place. Right. And a couple days later, those keys were found. We don't know exactly where those keys were found, by who, or anything like that. But somehow they came into play here, which I'm not convinced that they did, with at least with the information that we have. You know? Yeah, it's a. I feel like we're missing piece. I feel like we're missing something. Like there's there's pieces to this puzzle that we're sitting here debating and thinking about and pondering and researching and, you know, wanting to know that are out there, but it's like, who do you believe? You know what I mean? Right. What side do you believe and who, who's going to be the most unbiased to provide you the correct information? Oh man. I'm so ready for these discussion questions, dude. <laughs> I'm so ready. <laughs> okay. So, um, Vince told us that he felt that it was kind of one of those cases that had like the small town f- feel mm-hmm. and that they basically just didn't want to do the legwork on it. Do you agree with that, that it did have that feel to you after we've gone through everything? 100%. Yeah. You I know, agree. I, I'm never one, like I respect our authorities 100%, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it, I am aware that in a lot of cases, the mentality to win a case trumps finding out the truth. Right. And that's, unfortunately very sad because and of I reputation. Think that, that happens a lot mm-hmm. 
But I do feel like this might be one of those cases. There Mm -hmm. is no DNA evidence that puts him there. Mm -hmm. First of all. Mm -hmm. Second of all. Like the appeals that he's putting through make sense too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was reading to you his response Mm -hmm. where he was talking about the 13th juror. Mm -hmm. So if she had like if she wasn't allowed or if she didn't say anything, right, to to determine, that's what they're saying, that she didn't have any type of input to determine whether he was found guilty or innocent. Mm-hmm. How he quoted it, my mouth dropped. Right. Why couldn't the bailiff be in there then? Mm-hmm. In the deliberation room. Right. If we're allowing 13 we're jurors, allowing why don't we allow everybody else? If we're allowing a 13th juror you want a clown to just too? go in there and sit in. <laughs> right. To listen for what? Mm-hmm. To me, to have to, yeah, to listen for what? If she's not going to have any type of output, why is that person there? Mm-hmm. Why not let the bailiff in? Mm-hmm. Right? Because we all know, mm-hmm. we all make facial expressions. We have our own responses. Like, if y'all know me, like I have a lot of facial expressions mm-hmm. to whatever my emotion is. Mm-hmm. So whether I'm there to like give you an input or not, you're going to see my input. Right. So like little things like that kind of makes me question like what like what's going on here? Right. So then it goes from that into question of would it have changed the outcome? Mm-hmm. And it's like maybe something that small wouldn't have, but there's so many of those, oh well this one little thing wouldn't have. Oh, this mm-hmm. one little thing wouldn't have. This one and little thing. And it starts to add up where you're like, wait, 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 wait. These wait. are no longer just one little thing. Right. It's multiple things. Another big thing is the fact that they took so many testimonies from I don't know however else to put this. Shady ass people. <laughs> Shady right. ass people. Right. Who have drug addictions. Histories within the law. You're going to take that over his family? Mm-hmm. I mean, I get it. Family has biased. But if your fam- if the family is stating information and then the science backs up what the family is stating, not what these corrupt people are saying, why right. are we going towards that end and not the other? Right. And if you know you're going to, if you're Michael Fortner and you know you're going to prison and it's a matter of either 15 or 30 years, you'd say whatever they wanted you whatever. to say too. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, to answer your question, unfortunately, I do feel that this was a situation where they worried more about their winnings mm-hmm. than the truth. Yeah. And I think another way to kind of like point out this response for me kind of goes into the next question as well. So I'll just go ahead and pose it here. Okay. What happened to the arson? <laughs> so if nobody was convicted of that arson, they never even got brought up. And if you read those appeals, it's barely even mentioned. So what happened? Who was convicted of that? Who was charged with that? What did they determine? They did the investigation of the fire, determined it was arson, and then nothing ever happened. Mm. Literally nothing ever happened with that. They didn't investigate it any further. It never came up. Those charges never got added on to anybody's count. Nobody, nothing ever happened. So that arson charge just goes away, which to me is the same thing. Well, that may not be a winning case. So we're not going to take that on because we can't fully prove that these shady ass people that just so happened to flee the state on the exact same day Mm -hmm. after the time of the crime, like... You know what I mean? Like, I understand that it's all circumstantial, but again, of course, nobody picked that up. Yeah. And so to me, that again, kind of answers question number one. Is this a small town feel? Yes, because look at this. They, you know? they like purposely turned their head because they mm-hmm. wanted to just focus on this one thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to look for the truth to mm-hmm. gain different pieces of, mm-hmm. of information from different alleys that are happening. I mean, arson's a big damn thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to not even include that at all is crazy. 
Yeah, I agree. I think, and there's like, I just think there's so many little aspects of this that I can't express that I agree with Vince enough. I mean, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this next question, um, I think is probably going to like bring up some interesting aspects. So there was a deposition from a confidential informant that mm-hmm. came forward. Mm-hmm. Who was that, that confidential, confidential person? <laughs> <laughs> so true, right? Okay. So I kind of have a thought on this. Are you ready? Yeah, let's hear it. So I think that it's one of two things. I think this is somebody who was like, you know, that that third roommate or whatever. Somebody that's like basically not brought up in any of this, mm-hmm. hasn't been a part of it at all, and was not suspected of committing the crimes, like had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Or B, that it was Michael Mount. And I'm going to tell you why I think it was Michael Mount over all of that. (laughs) I think it was Michael Mount because he was the one who initially said that Mr. Brown dropped him off at the time that he said. So that corroborated Mr. Brown's story. Mm -hmm. Then once he got hooked up in Florida and they're trying to figure out what they got to do to get out of these charges, not only in Florida, but then also in West Virginia. All of a sudden, this bird starts chirping a different fucking song. <laughs> and now, not only did he have zero charges on any of this, he wasn't convicted of anything. He would had no connection to any of this. And then they bring forward the opportunity of like, well, we know you committed a past crime that those charges were dropped by Mr. Pinkerton's father, right? Mm -hmm. And we'll never bring those up again if you tell us the truth about this. Just tell us that Mr. Brown did it and you get to walk free. Bro. What would you do? It was Mr. Mount. So now years go by, years and years and years go by, and all this weight starts carrying on his shoulders about the fact that this innocent man is serving time in prison because of his own testimony Mm -hmm. that he did it just to save his own ass. So he says, I'll come forward and tell you the truth, but in a confidential way. So that's like, for me, such a heavy argument about Michael Mount. I obviously have zero proof of that. That's just my own personal opinion. That that makes so much sense to me in my head. That makes sense. Right. I mean, we'll never know. But I mean, and I it could have been think- any of them, but we know it wasn't Mr. Fortner. Heck no. That guy's Lolo. Yeah. And I think that um, he he got like the best deal that he could possibly get with the whole thing. I mean, he filed one appeal. That's This is what always happens, right? You get convicted of murder. You get sentenced to life. Inevitably, that's followed by immediate appeals. Mm-hmm. That's to be expected, which is why we went through them, because what was detailed in those appeals was so so important in this case based on the fact that that provided a whole bunch of evidence and information that just keeps getting denied 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 like they never get the chance to present it then they get they finally get a trial and then they're like uh no Mm -hmm. and then they finally get a chance at a trial uh no so they i mean he's trying i mean (laughs) i just think it's possible that it's somebody else but if it were somebody that were a third party that was not a part of this and did not have anything to do with this it was just literally a matter of somebody coming forward and telling them why would you not tell them that up front why would you not come to the police during this investigation i mean even if you were um mr fortner's best fucking friend and he was on for this and he told you that he killed them like how could you not 
tell somebody and live with yourself. You know what I mean? And let somebody else go to prison just because your friend, like to help your friend out. I mean, Mm -hmm. sorry, Tay, but like if you came to me and told me like, (laughs) yo, I killed somebody, I would have a really hard time vouching for you. Yeah. Knowing that. You know what I mean? And blaming somebody else. Right. And I, yeah. I, so to I me, like- I don't, I don't think that Fortner would have anything to do with it. I mm-hmm. mean, it was somebody that Fortner trust, and that's another thing that goes towards Michael Mount. They were in the same group of friends, mm-hmm. and supposedly, based on the journals that were found by Mr. Fortner, he was in a pos- he liked to be in that position of power where he felt like he was controlling people and michael mount was one of those people named in his journal that yeah. he felt that he was controlling so he was telling mount things and i think that that's the confidential informant that's my opinion no i agree with you i think i think that's the best decision <laughs> i don't think that's the best decision i mean to me it's i don't want to say it's like so clear like crystal clear but it almost makes me kind of hate Michael Mount at the same time you know mm-hmm. what I mean like what an asshole yeah why Selfish. didn't it, if, if that was him how could you do that to somebody yeah. and yeah I just because even if he got convicted of something in in that even if it was like the beanie or whatever mm-hmm. that's nothing in comparison to what an innocent man is now serving yeah definitely all right question number four innocent or guilty I mean, innocent. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we started this off and I I already, not that I'm biased, but I mean, like when we were doing the the interviews and we're talking, I think the thing that gets me every time is the DNA. Mm -hmm. DNA and like science doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. No matter how much you try, Mm -hmm. how much anybody tries, you can't hide it. Right. And... The police were talking about how, like, the gunshot residue can just, like, up and fly away. Mm, no, They bro. were able to disprove that. They Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, like, no. Science doesn't lie. Okay. The science does not say that he was there. So, if you will, I have a couple bunny trails I want to go down and pretend that okay. we know answers. Okay. So, let's pretend that we, that Michael Brown did do it. Okay. I still don't think that the state put up a strong enough argument to convince me of that. Right. So if he did, they should have done a hell of a lot more work to confirm mm-hmm. that he did so that we aren't sitting here today, you know, cause beyond a reasonable doubt, that's not where I'm at. Yeah. And they so didn't go beyond a reasonable right. doubt. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he is innocent based off of this as well. But I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not possible that they couldn't prove that he did it. I just don't feel that they did prove that, that he yeah, did it. Yeah, it's not here. Right. The The best evidence that they have against him are those testimonies. Which... And those testimonies right. are poop. Right. <laughs> right. By poop people. Right. I agree. So how can you go that... How can you... Like, that that just doesn't make sense in my head. How are you going right. to lean so heavily upon that mm-hmm. and then just be like, oh, science, I don't know. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> I think Back it's... Back burner. Yeah. Okay, but then I guess this goes into question number five is who did it then? Because I think that Mr. Fortner is the most frustrating for me out of all of them. And the reason is, is because his palm print was not on the gun. That, to me, is so fucking frustrating. 
they were able to prove that that nine millimeter that was owned by Mr. France was used and the only palm print on that gun was Mr. France. Mm -hmm. However, nobody ever placed him at the crime scene closer than he was in the car. Yeah. And some of them didn't even say that. So what the fuck? Like, what really happens? Right. So to me, it's almost like, had Fortner not said anything in Florida, he probably would have been out of this completely. Yeah. Because there was no DNA evidence tying him to that. He just admitted to it. He's like, yeah, I was there, but I didn't pull the trigger. That's what implicated him. Mm -hmm. So, but then at the same time, his stories don't add up. And he's clearly a dirtbag for a bunch of the things that he said and the people that he has implicated falsely. And the inconsistencies in his stories. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think if you're so inconsistent, then you're guilty of something. Mm -hmm. So what are you guilty of based on the evidence? To me, it looks like Mr. France had to do it. Right. Because the, because of his handprint. Right. It's like, Um, it's so frustrating because I want to think that Mr. Fortner did it. That's what I want to believe. But then we're talking about DNA. It doesn't show that either. Yeah. All it show, all the DNA showed was that Mr. Brown was not there. Mr. France was the only one who touched his own weapon Mm -hmm. and that that weapon is the weapon that was used to commit the murders. Unless, I mean, it doesn't seem like they're this smart to do this, but unless whoever took that gun Mm -hmm. had a glove. Right. You know, that's the only way that you wouldn't get handprints on it. But I genuinely don't think anyone would have taken that step i mean they didn't choose to take that step when they're in florida so why would they have taken it here they did take the step to burn the clothes well we think that they burned the clothes because mr fortner never turned over his clothes yeah. from that night they were gone they're gone yeah maybe i that's don't know what was burnt up in the back of uh the woods right and what they did do with like the gunshot residue and stuff those those tests that they did conduct they were able to prove that the gunshot residue was not in Mr. Brown's vehicle. So to me, it basically indicates that they went out for drinks for a big hurrah before he left for school. And then he drove a friend home, Michael Mount, and then he went home himself. And then they went for whatever reason, we don't know, to, with no apparent motive at all, to kill two men, military execution style, and then point the finger at the only other person that they were hanging out with that night. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like how you were kind of saying a gang. It almost seems like Mr. Mount and Mr. Fort. It almost seems like Mr. Fortner kind of had like control of, or he thought he did, yeah. of Mr. Mount and Mr. Pinkerton and a couple of guys that hung out. Mm-hmm. And knowing that Mr. Brown was leaving... They just pointed the finger at him, hoping that... Maybe there's, like, a little bit of resentment there, too, because right. he was getting out of the town. Right. You know? They just pointed the finger at him so that they didn't have to deal with it, thinking Honestly, it would go away. it's so sad, but I feel like a part of it is, like, they didn't have a big enough reason. They are just messed up in the head. Mm-hmm. And that's what... that I feel like that's what makes it more sad, is this mm-hmm. guy had a future. And you know what else is sad? Is that these victims and their families don't have justice. They don't have answers. They don't have anything. Other than they no longer have their loved ones. And that's it. And to me, that's just terrible. Yeah. So, okay, I do have one last question. I know I had a lot of discussion questions in this case. Okay, so if you were on this case in any capacity, like at all, 
would in your but you were on Mr. Brown's team. We'll put it that way. Would you have taken a different approach to the the trials or appeals? And the reason I ask this is because I feel like I completely would. And the re- I don't want to like seem like I think that his attorneys are incompetent or anything. I'm sure they chose the information that they had that was relevant and that they could prove and all that kind of stuff when they submitted it. But I think that even just based off of our short discussion that we've had here, that we've brought up a whole bunch of things that were not in those appeals. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are like devastating factors. So I just, I mean, it seems to me like not only were those appeals, I mean, they were heavily in depth. I mean, believe me, there was a lot of documents, but, and so they may have had really good intention and they may have fully believed that they were doing the right thing. But I just, I feel like there were things and details and, and bits and pieces of information that was not included that could have been, and had it been included, you know, where would we be? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I agree with that. Actually, that's a, that's a good way to put it. I think that they started, you know, with the right information. I just wish that they had extra stuff in there. And I mean, I'm not an attorney, so I definitely don't want to come across as that they did it incorrectly or anything like that. But I just, um, I makes like me think where we would more. be, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, inf- if more information was in there. Yeah, definitely. All right. So that's all the discussion questions that I had today. Do you have anything that you want to add or do you have any other questions for me? I know we've gone through a lot of stuff. (laughs) No, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty good about what we talked about today. Yeah. I think that this case is probably going to stick with me for a while. Yeah. (laughs) I think I'm probably going to lose sleep over this one. (laughs) Definitely, dude. If we have any updates, we will let you guys know. Yeah, for sure. Also, these discussion questions are, again, going to be posted on our Facebook page. So head over to Facebook, search Crime Addicts Pod, scroll down. You're going to see our Amazon link and keep going a little bit. And then you're going to see discussion questions for episode 12 in the comments. Answer them. Let us know what you think. Interact with us. Is there something that we're completely missing? Are we on track? Where are mm-hmm. you guys kind of at with this Yeah, whole case? I'm really interested to see like what you guys think about this too. Like if yeah. there's something that we just completely missed mm-hmm. and if you guys think that he is guilty, tell us. Like I want to know. I, I want to really know too. Know. And we'll post a picture of him. I mean, we do have one. It's obviously of him being in custody, but we'll definitely post it with the discussion questions as well, just to put a face to the name. We're excited to hear what you guys think. So please head over to Facebook and interact with us. Yes. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on Michael Edwin Brown. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.